Check, check, is this thing on? Welcome to Seeing Sounds. This is the show about all things art and life from Restless Minds and Weirdos brought to you by Static Art and Life. I am your host, Jay Ray. You can catch us online at seeingsoundsradio.com and you can catch us on social media at Seeing Sounds. That's A-T, Seeing Sounds. As with every show, and this is our welcome back show, so I'm super excited about our first guest because... He has just played a part in, in so much of, you know, my my kind of personal soundtrack to my life. And I'm happy to have him be kind of the opening show for this new season of shows. And um, with me today, I have Jay Dennis, um, producer, artist himself. You've you've heard his work, you know, under Blue Six and, and Naked Music NYC. Uh, he is the co-founder of Naked Music Recordings, um, which was responsible for creating so many classic, um, just soul groove, dance, house music um, that many of us just kind of love. And, and so I'm so grateful, Jay, that you've taken the time out of your schedule to sit down with me. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for the nice intro. No, no problem, man. I'm, I'm great. I'm happy to have you. Um you know, so I, I in that intro, I, it's a, it's a true statement. So when I say like naked music, like freed a generation of music listeners, because I remember when I would hear the music, it it gave me possibility um, because it was that balance of, you know, it was it was so many things. It was soulful. It was it was house. It was groove. It was all of that, and it was just well produced. How does that make you feel? And is that something you could have ever imagined when you started your career? Um, well, I'm pleased that it had a good effect on you. Uh, I don't know. You know, it's hard for me to gauge how, because, you know, because we were never a mainstream thing. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's hard for me to gauge just how influential we are. I feel like we've always had a small to medium-sized number of fans that it was very important to. Mm-hmm. You know, more than like a large number of people whom it's not anything. So I do, I, I have a small but fas- uh, passionate following, yeah. I, guess I would say. <laughs> so, uh, 
how influential. I don't know. I feel like you can't know this stuff till after you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know how how influential you were, how much right. you meant to people. But people, I do get nice, heartfelt emails from people all the nice. time, which is very, which always make my day when I'm in a bad mood and somebody writes me a nice thing about how a you know record helped them through a day or helped them through an illness or 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 any number of other. Uh, life situations that's really my that's my true motive so it really does make me happy when people tell me that awesome um when i go back and listen to your music it um you know and i went back to early songs like i'll take you to love which um yeah, i hadn't heard right, you really went back yeah i hadn't heard that in a really long time and i was it's like 20 more than 20 yeah um i think it was 95 that it was listed i was like oh my goodness i remember this tune i couldn't remember it had been so long and you know, soul, um, so singers, um, soul singers, it was just really clear and going through the work that you've done, how, how inspirational that was. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about your earliest connections to kind of soul music and soul singers? Well, I live in New York and I, I grew up in New Jersey and I've lived in New York just forever. So, uh, and also I'm, I'm old enough that when I started, the bar was pretty darn high. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, which the, uh, to not go off on a tangent because that would really be like what happened to, <laughs> to soul music um, or R and B. Uh, but I grew up really li- like listening to you know Marvin Gaye and mm-hmm. Michael Jackson and and uh, uh, you, well countless other Stevie Wonder, mm-hmm. countless uh, numbers of soul soul not necessarily just soul artists because I like a lot of stuff i like uh a lot of arty stuff i like almost anything funky mm-hmm. yes groovy. so i liked i liked like the talking heads equally to earth wind and fire yes you know that stuff mean? uh and also back back then when i was growing up like there was a lot of crossover between black music and white music mm-hmm. like, in a really good way like so you had like you know like grace john's records or something yes where, like you know that it's you have these like a mixed race band mixed race production and the whole it's just this great stew of kind of urban funkiness mm-hmm. and that's a lot of what i liked growing up was that so but you know and also the elegance of some of the stuff like you know like brian ferry or, or even the talking heads it was definitely like sophisticated funkiness it wasn't not which is not to say i don't like stuff like james brown mm-hmm. which is a little more like raw sounding but mm-hmm. uh i definitely am a product of those sort of late 70s early 80s records which you know, had some of both in it. Yeah. Like even stuff like one of my favorite records is Off the Wall. You know, oh my gosh. Record. And basically it's a disco record. It is. I mean, if you listen to it, but it's just like a really, really elevated disco record. Yes. <laughs> With like the best arrangements, it's all Quincy Jones, I mean, the best arrangements and, you know, obviously the amazing uh, singing and production and just, it's ridiculous, you know. But it is still essentially a, a dance record. Right. And, you know, it had that... um which your which your records have as well it is that um it's that that place where you feel you feel the grit more like it's 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 it it sounds crisp and mixed well and played well and you feel the grit um, in a, in a way that's really unique, and I consider off off the wall is just one of my favorite records of all time. And yeah, there was so much emotion, <laughs> you know. Michael was just full of emotion in it, and it's a dance record. But yeah. man, that thing sounds great. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. That record is is, is a huge influence on me, just in a lot of ways. Wow. Well, Quincy Jones plays. You can go on for hours about his influence. Jesus. Yeah. Um. How did did you know? So you so getting started in music. So being influenced by a record like Off the Wall, kind of. Um. Can you talk to me just really, really briefly about kind of your early beginnings in the music business and kind of that recording and production process? Uh, oh yeah, sure. So I mean, basically, you know, you know, I'm a kid from a middle class family in New Jersey, mm-hmm. and when I started, things were not like they are now. Like re- making records was really expensive. Yes. And it was not a thing that one could do at home on their laptop. <laughs> As it is now, it was expensive, and uh, you know the flip side to that though is New York was just the, you know a really bustling you know st- recording studios every ten feet kind of place. Like mm-hmm. there was so much going on, and I had just you know a, a lot of my friends and everybody was working on all these. You know, I look back on it now and I'm like, oh, you know, uh, like Bob Power's a good example. Bob oh, is Dave's yeah. oldest and best friend. Mm-hmm. That's how I know my partner Dave. Bob, at the time when I came, he was working on new acts that no one had ever heard of. Like one was the Tribe Called Quest. Yeah, one right. Was De- one was Bob- De La Soul. Right. Yeah, he was recording all this stuff. I remember him playing me D'Angelo's demos and wow. saying, you know, he just got to like assign this guy to yep. do, and he's like, he thinks he's like amazing. And I like, I remember him playing me the demo of brown sugar or something and i was just like pretty floored by it like <laughs> uh, like oh my god like this guy's like amazingly talented but there was a lot of that like that was like that wasn't uncommon you know what i mean mm-hmm. like there were a lot of people working on really things that you n- now know is like oh yeah that became a really seminal record yeah. you know which i feel is largely gone now i mean new york has none of that anymore but it was pretty cool at the time but it definitely it was a big free-for-all of people trying to get money in studio time and and all of that, but it was a bustling culture, so.
time, actually, Dave owned a, a room at a studio downtown called Platinum Island, and okay. um, Bob was like, "Why don't you give him the downtime? Downtime? So downtime's the time nobody buys, like in mm-hmm. the middle of the night, so yeah. it's like four in the morning on a Tuesday. You want to make some records? So, which is exactly how I started making dance records because it was a completely <laughs> pragmatic move. It was completely like, what could I possibly make? on my own or with like just just me and a singer or or, you know or me and Dave playing bass and a singer in the middle of the night that I could sell and get to the next thing and then it was like well dance music you could do back then you could make a dance record and you could sell it and Mm -hmm. that's exactly what I did so I made a couple of like the first Azuli records I sold to Azuli I think it was in, in the UK I don't even remember some of the early stuff and it was really me stumbling around because I actually had to you know, I really was into funky music and soul mm-hmm. music, and I did not listen to house music back then. Like, I did not. I, I To this day, I still really don't like much house music. I like some house music, not no more than I like of any other format of music, uh-huh. which is because sometimes people get this thing with, like, a genre. I'm like, no, there's basically either, like, really good music or really bad music in any right. genre. Like, I don't like a lot of rock, but I, but the rock I like, I love. Right. There's an incredible amount of bad rock records. Just like there's an incredible amount of bad dance records. Right. Maybe even more bad dance records because you can make bad dance records on your own on a, on a laptop more. So people do. And um, and you can make bad dance records that become these create that that do that that unexpectedly do like big big business. Yeah. So people want more of it. Oh yeah, there's been there's been plenty of big DJ right. club hits of records that you never want to hear again. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean that just that just is what it is. I, I mean. So at least, at least initially it was a, it was a pragmatic move, and mm-hmm. the, and the real beginnings then of what naked music became was me having really had had enough of. I just didn't want to make records that I didn't love, mm-hmm. and so the very first the, the very first Blue Six records in particular, I remember especially with like Sweeter Love. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking I'm going to make something just that I want to make, and it's going to have nothing to do with what other people are making. Yes. And uh, and and it's either going to work or not. And if it doesn't work, well, then I'm done with this. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll just I'll move on to whatever the other some other thing is. And if it does work, then this is going to be my direction. Wow. And and it worked. Mm-hmm. You know, I made this thing, which is I guess how good things happen. You just I just said let's just do this. And the, my meeting with Aya was somewhat fortuitous. She was really young when we made that record, like probably under like 20 or something. Wow. Like that. And um. I um, I met her through the Groove Collective guys who were like mm-hmm. Jonathan Marin, the bass player in Groove Collective at the time. He's one of my best friends still. I mean, for years and years, and I was good friends with all those guys back then. And um, uh, and back then those guys there was like regular shows like in you know at the, uh, this place, the Bank, and uh, on Fourteenth Street, like in you know at two in the morning, you'd go downstairs and the Groove Collective would be the house band kind of and people would sing and whatnot. And I was somebody who sang with them sometimes and. Um, Jonathan had introduced me to her and said, "You know, she would sound really good on your stuff." Mm-hmm. Um, and the rest is sort of history. So absolutely. Uh, um, so that's how that came about. But the whole thing was it was really just a pragmatic move to make the a kind of uh, records that that I want to hear, but also that maybe a DJ would want to play. Yeah. You know, I always feel like our records have been in some weird in between zone where they're not exactly DJ records, but they're they're not. Like you can totally dance to all of them, but I make I'm I'm notorious for making kind of chill records depending on your state of mind. Right. <laughs> yeah, cause Strange Flowers like that for me. Um, that's my mm-hmm. chill out. Strange Flowers like one of my chill out records. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I think that. It's, yeah. Exactly. I, and I get 
accused of that a lot. The trouble with like the chill out title, because sometimes like because I, I I get that a lot. Like like the trouble is like there's a lot of really bad insipid mm-hmm. records have been made as chill out records, and you know what I mean, almost as a category where yeah. people people like. And I've always, one of the things that's like haunted me my whole life is I've always been trying to make records that really are just meaningful, mm-hmm. like, period, like almost in whatever, whatever they felt like was more just this, my, reflective of my state of mind or what I was trying to make at the time. But the real goal was just trying to make something meaningful.
Not only was it naked music, was it called? First of all, it was like, you know, there was the naked music NYC. And then, of course, the, you know, there was naked music recordings. And then what was cool was the imagery that went with it was perfect. Yeah. Can yeah you- that was well, when we started a label. That was Bruno's friend, Stuart. Wow. Who okay. was like, and Stuart, who I haven't talked to in a million years, Stu Patterson was an illustrator. Who was who loved the album that I made for Ohm, which mm-hmm. was the first naked, which was all down tempo R and B, right? Like of the of the ilk. It sounds like '90s down tempo R and B. The first the naked music NYC record, and um, Stewart like loved that record. So he was like, "Well, when you start a label, tell me because I want to do your logos and your artwork." And we were like, "Okay." <laughs> you know, so it all it was pretty organic. It all just came about. There's a lot of stuff that's been on with the label that like fans or people that are that like the label have have just done because they liked us or helped us. So yeah, that's Stuart perfect. One, but we you know that was and he was widely copied. The style of the label was so copied by so many labels. And back when with the comps thing and all that yeah. kind of stuff back then, and that's why when it was time to like leave that, I was like I, I didn't you know you get to the point where you feel like okay as a concept this is played out and it's been copied and, it. lo- and watered down so much that it becomes you don't want to become a parody of yourself right that to me is the worst not moving ahead is death <laughs> that so. explains a lot um actually because you know uh when you so at the beginning um there's the big i call it the big five because <laughs> i remember that year very vividly where you know you had all of the, it was those singles and and then they just banged like yeah and it was, yeah we did it one twelve after another did really well it was look it didn't shock anybody more than me I was like you know when we did the very first one which was Migs breaking it down record yeah Bruno, Migs was just the DJ that Bruno knew and he, he was like he made this really good thing I'm like okay cool and then I did a remix of it and yep. all people did really good remixes of it. And that became single number one, and like people loved it. And I was like, "All right," and it sold like crazy. This is back when you could sell a lot of records. Right, so it really did sell a lot of records. And then, just in a row, they all just did like you know the blue, the blue six uh, yep. singles mm-hmm. and Electronic, and yep. and all of them just it did really well. Lisa Shaw's records. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so it was you know you could do that back then. Uh, that's some something I really do miss, though. I, I have to admit that like the idea, which people. That's the biggest bummer to me about the music industry in its current state, that because the economics of the industry have essentially been destroyed, where recorded music is concerned, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, there's, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just simple math in a way. It's like if you make a thing where people can make a career, a lot of people will make a career, it will become competitive, and the products will become more competitive, and you'll get good products. Yeah. But as soon as you remove the money from it, it just becomes what it is now, mm-hmm. which is sort of hobbyist amateur hour. Like people who there are people who've been doing it a long time already who are sort of you know they're famous enough to make a good living touring. But for anybody new, it just becomes like a, a sort of non-sustainable thing. Yeah, because really, it's it's really really difficult to to earn a living off recorded music nowadays. 
And as that market's gotten flooded, it's dragged everything down with it, which is like licensing to film and TV has gotten dragged mm-hmm. down and everything along with it as it becomes more and more difficult uh, to do. And also the market's flooded. Mm-hmm. So you have sort of a hyper-saturated market of, of – there's like hyper-saturated market of mediocrity, basically. Wow. And, it's not just with music. I think it's true. I'm a photographer as well, and it's um, and professionally, and it's the same thing exactly as true in photography. Where it's yeah. a super saturated market of of uh, work of varying quality. You know, it's a weird time because the the you know things don't go backwards. I'm not right. one of those people who sits around and is like, oh, if only because you know on the but on the other hand, I I do I'd be lying if I said I didn't miss sort of there being a bar to professionalism. Mm-hmm. Like, on the one hand, it's like I don't miss any of the people that were just, you know, like, you know, without mincing words, there were just a lot of shit people in the music right. industry who I don't miss, and I don't miss those people having power over artists right. at all. So it's like, you know, good riddance to them. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, what I do miss is the idea that there's some editorial staff yes. <laughs> in, in the art world in general, that it's not just that entry to the art world isn't like I made this thing and now I put it everywhere, and now my thing is, is out there is somebody who's spent 30 years doing a thing and this is somebody who's done it for 10 minutes so you know that tends the hyper flood of content in the world yes so that is weird i mean i don't i don't you know who knows i don't know what the end result of all this will be it's all it's all so new and it's all unprecedented you know you know when back at the time when you what talk to us a bit about what the process was like to get a record into the stores um so you went to you now had a label you um had these tracks that were coming from it how did these what what types of work had to be done well, to get it? if you're talking defensive kind of store if you're talking about big stores that that was a drag actually because mm-hmm. it was there used to be things called co-ops which was just like it is in the supermarket like you do if you want your campbell's soup at eye level somebody's getting paid yeah and it was exactly the same in record stores you had to pay for like oh you want you want end cap placement it, the only time that wasn't true in a big store like a chain store is if somebody in the store like you if you had a fan yeah. or an advocate that liked you they would do stuff for you and uh and depending on the territory, people did stuff like that for us, but right. it tended to be in territories where we were popular. So it was like, okay, San Francisco mm-hmm. or or Atlanta, really, mm-hmm. a lot. And uh, yeah, there were definitely, you know, I could say there were definitely naked music cities. There were definitely like, a, you know, five or six cities where we were really popular. And then oddly enough, and that and South Africa, which is bizarre, but what? true, because EMI had a presence in South uh. Africa at the time and we were on the radio there. So it's weird. Like, if you look on like my Facebook page, which... Mm-hmm. I don't do any real personal stuff, but right. I'm on there as for music, as as me, as Jay Dennis, and like it's all South Africans, all my friends, because they know the records and they were really important to them, which is weird, but it's one of those weird uh, modern era things. Interesting. Um, so uh, Aya, of course, definitely one of those voices that we associate with Naked Music. Um, then and now. Yeah, back then, Lisa Shaw, Aya, yep. I think were the two. Yep. Oh, and Gael had yes. made a great record. Ooh, Transient Wins yeah, Life. Like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you want to hear the whole story about that whole time period was a huge bummer. Uh, you know, okay, thank you so much for mentioning that because I do want to, because there was, um, entry, I didn't put that in here, but I thought... And this is all intuitive. Yeah. Yeah, I w- Lisa's, basically, Lisa's Cherry record, Guile's Transient record, mm-hmm. and Aya's Strange Flower record were all made within like the same like I don't know two year period. Yeah, 
and it was right after we had done our, a deal with Virgin, it was with EMI, and and um, uh, basically they just you know after we did this deal with them, you know you, they do the deal with the ostensibly you're going to sign these artists, which is what mm-hmm. we did, or we would have never signed anybody, but back then we did. We signed Gael, Aya, and and. Uh, at least those were people we worked with that right. we were making these records anyway, and like, okay, great, we'll sign them then with Virgin's money, and then the idea is that if we make something good, they'll get behind it and then carry the ball, being the big company. But in fact, what happened was the thing that probably happens 95% of the time with majors, which is you do what you do, and then they proceed to ignore you, So, yeah. which is exactly what happened. And yeah, I remember trying to convince them, like, no, these are like that. Because I really thought all three of those records were really good records. Mm-hmm. When you compare them to records that came out at the same time yeah. in related genres, I thought they were great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was really proud of them, you know. And um, no, nobody cared basically. Basically, it came down to the Virgin could have cared less. So we were pretty much on our own. Which is why at that point, that's exactly when we left. Uh, thankfully, Dave. Uh, my partner Dave Boonshoft, who's naked. My partner, he's like my best friend and my partner in Naked, and mm-hmm. Naked's bass player. And now he's guitar on half the stuff as well. Um, Dave, uh, you know, was an insightful businessman, and the reason why we did the deal with Virgin to begin with is because we could do it as a joint venture rather than a buyout. Right. Because the idea being that if we do it as a buyout, we'll get screwed. Like if they don't believe in the records, mm-hmm. they'll own them and we won't be able to get them back and then we'll be kind of messed. So if you do it as a joint venture, basically we got to leave. Basically we got to leave with our, with our records. Excellent. So that's what we did. That's a lesson so. for people listening. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Whenever possible. Well now things are so, man, the industry is just so completely different mm-hmm. now that if, yeah, if I was giving advice to somebody to say, here's how to do this, you know, back, 15, 10 or 15 years ago or 20 years ago versus now. It's like a completely different landscape. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so at any rate, we he, we, he did have the foresight to uh, to do that. And so we, we did um, get to walk away with our masters, which is good. So at least, the, like, basically at least the records got to come out in their yes. pure form and they were going to unadulterate it, but we had nowhere near the resources that would have, you know, we, we would have had to support them had you know, the, the majors gotten behind them. So yeah, that is what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, I, at the time I was really, really bummed about it. I was just like, I nearly killed myself, uh, making, uh, Aya's record. And I yeah. did half of Lisa's record with Eric. So right. I was, and Eric had killed himself making the, the guy else record. Right. And I know he was exhausted too. We were like, we were burnt and we really felt like we really did our best here. We, you know, I'm not saying we were perfect or we were Quincy Jones, but we really it, we, it was not for lack of trying. I'm on the outside, looking in, looking in, looking in. Tears away, no tears. 
talk to me a little bit about that process of kind of developing well, Blue Six. In the initially, because the first Blue Six records were 12s, right? Mm-hmm. So back, you know, dance music, especially 12 inches, were, are driven by producers. Yep. And, and, and basically, I'm a writer. I'm a songwriter-producer. That's mm-hmm. what I am, and I engineer, and I just, I want, you know, I just, a guy that wanted to make records, yeah. pretty much. And, um, you know, the, the first Blue Six records, they all did really well, mm-hmm. and... Like so much so that after, well, I have to say, particularly after Beautiful Tomorrow, which did really well, mm-hmm. like surprise, surprisingly, even to me, like because um, it's not like I perform, I don't perform, I don't tour, I don't do any of that. Right. Yeah, I didn't, you know. So, uh, but uh, if somebody told me I wanted to be like Steely Dan, where you just make cool records and people like them, and you, if you could make enough money to live, everything was good. But. uh the Blue Six records were as popular or more popular than the other records I made. So it just got to the point that when the whole thing fell through with Virgin, mm-hmm. that made it so that, like, okay, well, I guess the idea of keeping people signed is over, too. Because, mm-hmm. you know, none of that's sustainable without real money. Right. Um, so I just went back to, like, making my arty records. Mm-hmm. That's Blue Six or the Naked Music yep. uh, records. Mm-hmm. And, um,. Under monikers, and I, you know, and I work with like the same. I have like my my crew of New York people, you know. Oh yeah, we forgot to mention Catherine Russell. Yeah, Catherine Russell is a jazz legend, man. She's uh, she's just she's one of Dave's oldest friends, and she and Bob Power, and I've known her now for a million years because we go back to when me and Dave first met, and and uh, she's since gone on to become a, a pretty legendary jazz singer. I mean, you know, she sells at Lincoln Center and stuff. And also, people don't know, like Catherine, aside from doing stuff like her jazz c- career is insane. She's so great. And uh, she also would be, she's like a member, you know, she was singing with Bowie for years and she's in Steely Dan still. And uh, she's just amazing in a hundred different ways. She's like the greatest singer. And and, and also uh, the most wonderful person. I, nice. I, I dearly love her. She's just and like a joy to work with. She's so great. She's so you know, working with really good singers, which I've been spoiled by, because I've pretty much only worked with some really good singers. And Catherine's actually, aside from being a really good singer, is a really highly skilled musician. Like, she taught music and stuff. Nice. At Berkeley. She's really, like, knowledgeable. So some of the coolest stuff that I've done with her is stuff where I would write stuff and I'd sing her stuff, and she could harmonize stuff in ways that I can't even hear. Like, she's like, oh, you know, we could extend this out like this, and she would, like, sing this. She's like, don't worry, I know it sounds weird, but trust me, and we'll sing a chord <laughs> against it. And, like, I would never have heard that, and it's just like, wow, okay, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> wow. So, so even on Music and Wine even had some of that, where, like, the chords on the background, she's singing all those ahs, and those are, like, they're, like, eight-note uh, chords. It's oh, ridiculous. Amazing. And she's singing, uh huh. It's like amazing. And she has perfect intonation, so they're just, it's like amazing. It sounds like somebody did it on a keyboard and it's her. That's amazing. Jay Dennis, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule um, to chat with me. Um, I can't overstate enough how important, um, once again, your work has been and um, want to thank you while you're here um, because um, Naked Music, all of the stuff you've you've done um, is just dope and it's important. And I want to thank you for being and providing what you've provided and just taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks, man. Very humbling. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Um, Jay Dennis, um, joining me today here on Seeing Sounds. 
um, producer, writer, um, philosopher. <laughs> um, please continue to watch um, the Naked Music website. So that's naked-music.com. You can certainly buy uh, the latest Blue Six album, which is called Signs and Wonders, and that is available on Amazon and iTunes. So thank you so much for joining us for today's show and have a great day, everybody. Thanks a lot. <laughs>